This episode of Health Explorers is sponsored by Optimus Clinic. At Optimus, we're your partners in better living. Our team of professionals is here to guide you on your journey to optimal health. From preventative care to cutting-edge treatments, start your journey towards a healthier, happier you. Welcome to Health Explorers, hosted by Michael Kish and Dr. Jay Shaw. Welcome to Health Explorers, a podcast focused on digital health innovators who dare to go first into uncharted territory before the map is drawn. I'm your host, Mike Kish, an entrepreneur and three-time digital health CEO. My co-host is Dr. Jay Shaw. Jay is a cardiologist, startup chief medical officer, and previously practiced medicine at the Mayo Clinic and Mass General. Jay, we've been working together for the last several years. I am excited to continue that partnership as co-host of the podcast. It's great to be here, Mike. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you. Awesome. Well, since this is our first episode, maybe we should establish the focus of the podcast. So Jay and I are going to delve deeper into the stories of health explorers, the triumphs, the failures, the enduring impact of their groundbreaking companies. Our hope is that the discussion will be inspirational, cathartic, but above all, educational. We have some great guests lined up, folks we already know really well, uh, as well as people that we're meeting for the first time. What they have in common is that all of them had a vision and they took the risk to make that vision a reality. For this episode of Health Explorers, our guest is Shireen Yates. Shireen is an accomplished entrepreneur and CEO passionate about connected hardware and consumer health products. She's a veteran of the Silicon Valley startup community and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and MIT. Currently, she's a product leader at Meta. In 2013, Shireen co-founded Nema Labs, leading the company until its exit in 2020. Nina's mission was to help people with food allergies know exactly what was in their food. She and her team built an elegant solution that enabled real-time convenient testing of allergens at mealtime, specifically gluten and peanuts. Nima was recognized by Time Magazine and Popular Science as one of the best inventions of the year. Shireen. Hello. Good to see you. Oh, delighted to be here. Welcome to our first episode. I'm so honored and delighted to share my experiences here. <laughs> We'll see if you feel the same way at the end. <laughs> Shereen, we've known each other for over five years, and we've certainly had lots of discussions regarding our respective startups. But I am kind of excited to put you under the microscope and to go a bit deeper into your professional background, specifically your time as the co-founder and CEO of NEMA. So maybe to start us off, kind of in your own words, can you give us uh, sort of a 30-second overview of NEMA? Yes. So at NEMA, we develop devices that help people with food allergies and sensitivities to rapidly test their food on the spot and get a binary yes or no, whether or not that sample of food contains gluten or peanuts. And we ultimately are doing this to give people peace of mind at mealtime and to be able to enjoy their meals with their friends and family and have an extra data point wherever they go. That's really cool. And what was your original motivation to really focus on this aspect of health and food allergies specifically? So I found out in college, I just started to get really sick. GI pain, stomach issues, never had issues with food before. So it took a few years to finally figure out I was actually having these very intense 
food reactions, not quite allergies for myself, it was food um, sensitivities, and gluten, non-celiac gluten intolerance was the diagnosis for me, and I found it very, very hard to eat out, and after college, I was traveling for work quite a bit, and I felt like I was always getting exposed to hidden gluten, even when I was ordering like gluten-free meals at restaurants, so I just found it was it was like a personal pain point, and then as I started to you know, n- learn more and more about these intolerances and these allergies. It's like, this is quite a big market of folks that, that have this pain point, and there's not a really good solution to help them navigate. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of us have ideas and thoughts, and certainly from a personal experience like, like you had. But then what sort of clicked in your mind that said, let me form a company around this. Let me go try to do something about this. And like, do you actually remember, was there a specific point in time where you and, and your co-founder, Scott, said, let's start a company and here's here's our big idea about how we can really help people like you and, and many millions of others. Yeah, it's, no, it's such a good question. And I do remember the moment. So I was in business school when I was exploring the idea for NEMA. So I had the great privilege of just having a little bit of headspace to explore. And, and it was taking all my classes and getting my classmates to work on like the, the market and, and like all these different <laughs> aspects of the technology. And then free I labor. To- can't yeah, beat it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Sure. and then I met Scott, who became my co-founder, who's a mechanical engineer at MIT. And we started to enter these business plan competitions. And MIT has these pretty regular cadence of business plan competitions. We just kept getting good feedback. And then there was an accelerator at the end of the summer. Both he and I had full-time job offers coming out of school. He was undergrad. I was grad. I was getting my MBA. And it was at that point where we're like, do we do this? Should we, should we do this? And we're like, yeah, let's, let's give it the next like four or five months of this accelerator and see how we progress. So that was like the first kind of like, okay, we're going to delay our job offers. Then there was like, okay, do we just say no to these job offers? And that was after the accelerator, things were still going well, but we had no money in the bank. We had a really, really rough prototype. We had some people that seemed excited to work on this, but no commits. It was just job, it was, uh, Scott and I, who Scott also had some food issues with it with a dream and we were in Boston during all this and you know, I thought like wow if we were to do this the talent the, the funding for what we're doing is really on the west coast and so the second sort of checkpoint of like we're doing this was rejecting the job offers moving in with my parents and my new husband because I got married three days before we incorporated and we just oh, wow. like lived yeah we just like wow. lived with my parents for like five months while we were trying to like get funding wow. so I do yeah. remember it very well just saying my husband being like are you sure you want to say no and move in with your co-founder and your parents with me and I'm like yeah we got this <laughs> So, I mean, you know, coming out of MIT, I'm sure you had a a bunch of good opportunities. So, you know, what was it about NEMA or about the idea NEMA at the time that kind of got you over the the edge where you were like, look, I'm I'm willing to forego what I'm sure is a really good corporate job to kind of pursue this, you know, unknown passion project. What what was what was that? And then I guess the second part of that question is. Uh, did you have to convince your new husband or was he like, I'm on board, like, go for it? Uh, I'll answer the second part first. I think Kevin knew what he was getting into. So I think he's like, yeah, like, <laughs> go, go for it. So there's no convincing there. But on the first side, I don't, I wouldn't say there was one thing. It was a combination of these factors where it was like, I was looking at sort of like three dimensions when thinking about, do I commit to this direction? Um, one was, is there enough of a pain point here? Is this just my pain point? Or is there enough of a shared pain point? Is the market big enough? And is the pain point big enough 
Then the second was, is there viability to get to market with this approach in like, you know, like three to five years? I wasn't like thinking something 10 years out, but just something that was like viable. Was it was the technology viable to get there? And the third was, hey, was there enough funding appetite? Because I knew what we were doing was hardware, chemistry, software. It was going to be a big and, and then I just got positive signals along all those dimensions. Not like a, you know, a clear path of this is what we're doing, but just enough that it was an idea I was obsessed with. That's not going to be enough. You have to have sort of all these other dimensions figured out or at least like some positive signal across them. At least I did. So that was, I would say that's what convinced me. So that's really fascinating. So you were, you were kind of, kind of market testing the idea before you decided to start the company. Yes. You know, so what maybe were those examples? Like how did you get a level of confidence that this was a fundable idea? Did you talk to an investor or did you win some grant money, like how did you get into your head that like, look, I'm pretty sure I can convince somebody to invest in not only a hardware business, but a business that has a capsule with some unique chemistry included in it? We definitely tested a lot of investor interest when I was still in the accelerator. You know, I would like go to VCs even in Boston just to just chat and get, you know, get feedback, not pitching. But there was enough positive signal there that I was like, okay, there seems to definitely be an appetite. And, and then there was actually one investor that just sort of came out of the woodworks through my customer research. Like I was just like reaching out to advocacy groups and people who had food allergies. And one, one person, individual just said like, I'm really interested in putting a uh, half a million dollars into this to, to seed some of the, and, and so it, I was like, okay, I know fundraising is not this easy at all, but, but I was like, okay, I just like enough of those, those pain points, like those like proof points. I was like, wow, like this is a shared pain point that some person is so into this idea. So I was like, okay, this is something we can set our, like, you know, expand on and noodle on. So prior to NEMA, I mean, for what did people do? I mean, was there anything that existed that was similar to NEMA, even if it was less elegant or was it, you know, people just had to guess? and then deal with the consequences of guessing wrong. So there were kits on the market that allowed you to run basically chemistry experiments to test your food. It was antibody-based detection that everyone knows now because of COVID tests. So we're talking about test strip, solution, but it was literally like a, you know, long medical instruction of how to run this. There were pipettes, there was like shaking, but it, so it was not at all consumer friendly. There was like 20 steps involved. It would take like 20 minutes. But if, you know, if you were desperate enough, you could, but no one was a lot. I mean, I, I think I, I ran into one person that was actually using it in all of the market research. So it just wasn't designed for consumers. It was more for like food manufacturers to test. So the consumer solution, something that was rapid in your hand, packaged in a way that you could quickly take it out and just get that data point, nothing like that existed. So I'd say the detection technology was there, but not the usability. And so, you know, you had personal experience and probably dealt with healthcare organizations and providers yourself. And again, before NEMA, what what was sort of the traditional healthcare response to a concern about food allergies or food insensitivities? And and then how did you start interfacing with that community once you, you know, once you centered on this idea and actually started the company? Yeah, I mean, on the first, so the, there was really the diagnosis, okay, you have this food allergy, you have this food sensitivity, and here are a bunch of links to resources of what you can and cannot eat, and sort of good luck. Like, that was 
That was. But the, how did they even make that diagnosis? Right? Like, oh. is that just based on history and guessing, or like sort of just random testing? Like, test this for a week and then test that for a week and then yeah. stop. So for for food sensitivity, there was like food sensitivity testing where it was sort of like, you know, isolation based testing. And then for food allergies, there's the standard they're looking for the Ig response. And then for celiac, it's actually a blood test. Um, So that's the gluten intolerance. So they can do it from a blood test or or actually take a biopsy after you eat gluten for like a month and see if your villi in your intestine are reacting. So there are a few different methods depending on on what the issue is. So, so it sounds like, you know, like in a lot of ways, medical systems just have sort of this patchwork, you know, experience. And oftentimes it's clinical history and guesswork with some diagnostics. So when you started, let's say you had this idea and started bringing it, bringing it out, how did you interface with, you know, GI docs or allergy docs or nutritionists and, and sort of what was their response? Yeah, I would say like there was the medical community, the nutritionists, the allergists, the GI physicians, nurses, and whatnot. And then there's the advocacy groups. And when I first started, I thought, wow, the, the physicians are going to be probably the most skeptical. And I would say like the advocacy groups are going to be just like the most excited. It turned out it was like complete opposite. There was a lot of acceptance and, and interest from the physician side. And I think it was because you know, they're seeing patients on the daily where they literally have no, no, there's no tools. It's just like, Hey, you can't eat this, like good luck. And so they're like, Oh my gosh, a tool. And so like a lot of openness to test it and just a a lot more openness on the advocacy side. I think the mentality that we didn't anticipate was just this. These are, these are folks that have to have been so critical about what they're putting in their body or protecting their families or their kids that they're very, very critical. I think of anything that's sort of new, unprecedented and, and rightly so. Um, but it was just much harder to crack into that those groups. And then we found that there were some groups that were really, you know, kind of like proactive and open and some that just were like, no, we, we don't support this. We think it's higher risk because you're just taking a sample. You're not guaranteeing that your entire, you know, plate is free of. So that was a very yeah. surprising uh, part of the journey that we didn't anticipate. And I'm sure over time it changed, but kind of what was your strategy to sort of convert the those who were skeptical or didn't want to listen or just didn't think it was ready for use for themselves, I guess, on the advocacy side. How did you, how did you go about it? Because certainly in disorders where there's a large community, large online community, large patient community, they're going to be talking to each other and they're going to be saying like, use this, don't use this, this really worked, this didn't work. So it, you know, from a, from a company sort of marketing PR and, and, you know, standpoint, it, it is quite important. It's so important. Yeah. So our strategy was to be really transparent around the limitations of what we can and cannot do to do peer reviewed research and, you know, make sure that we get that data out there and we can help educate folks around what that data is showing in terms of our accuracy, our reliability. So super transparent around and investing in that. Like no one's telling us to invest, you know, there's no sort of like law that, but we were like, we know we, we really want to do this. And then I'd say on the advocacy side, just open communication. You know, we had these advocacy forums where we'd invite folks to the office from even when we knew that they were sort of like more skeptical just to build that trust. And it's a long play, Jay. Like this is, it was yeah. a new product category. 
I remember talking to someone early on who said it was in another category completely. They said it took like 10 years to get to a point where there was like a little more acceptance. And as a startup, you just don't have that time. So, I mean, we like, you know, to, to mitigate that, it was like, okay, look, there's going to be some folks that are anti. We can either spend a lot of time trying to convert them or we can lean into the folks that are supportive and equip them and become our champions and advocates. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we did in the, in the short term is just like, what do we, what can we do to equip our champions so that they can become our own ambassadors rather than us like trying to defend the brand itself. For, for those groups who, who you probably knew they were not going to be passionate advocates anytime soon, I'm assuming you were trying to get them to more of a neutral position where maybe yes. they're not supportive, but they're not openly like, don't buy this product. Right. What, what, was, what was sort of the strategy just to get some folks purely to that neutral position? I think, our, you know, our strategy is, I wouldn't say, I, I can't take credit on being so strategic about this, but what got them more to a neutral position was a lot of folks in their advocacy groups were actually users of ours, like customers. And the customers spoke on the behalf of how this device is really impacting their lives positively and changing their lives and defended it. And I think that was probably the most the most beneficial way to just sort of move the needle a little bit for those folks to be a little more open-minded. These are folks in their advocacy groups that are using the product. It's like no better way to kind of, uh, you know, have that entry point. Maybe a good transition is besides your initial experience with raising capital while at MIT where people were just throwing money at you. (laughs) That, that was the only time that happened. That was the only entire, way out. The entire duration, that one guy. It's like you started at the top of the mo- mountain and then it was just the slippery slope to the reality that, that most entrepreneurs face. So, totally. you know, I, I mean, I've, I've seen the product before. It was a beautiful product, but it, it certainly had some complexity to it. It's capital intensive when you're building hardware. When you were raising money for NEMA, what, what, what did investors like most about the business and then what did they ultimately like least about it? I think what they liked most was it was just a clear, very clear problem we were solving. There was no no solution, which also tied into what sometimes some of them didn't like, but there was no competition. It was like a new product category. They liked that the founders, myself and um, and Scott, had a very personal pain point to this. We understood the problem really intimately. And I think they liked that it was this kind of like really ambitious idea. You know, we were trying to bring food transparency, like equipping suddenly users with this lab tech that they could just apply to anything and then building this data layer too, where you could see what other people were testing and where they were testing this unprecedented data set. So I think those are all the things they liked. I think what they didn't like was that it was hardware. <laughs> um, that it was, it was not only hardware, but to your point, like it was chemistry and a consumable. It was yeah. software. It was a new product category. So a consumer product. So it was like laced with a bunch of these high risk bombshells along the way where, you know, they love the concept, but they're like, okay, if you're a, a, maybe not as a visionary as an investor, you'd be like, oh my God, run for the hills. And luckily we had some really awesome visionary investors that were willing to make the bet and were with us just like every step of the way. But it took, I mean, it was hard. Fundraising was not easy ever for us other than that first guy. <laughs> what, what percentage of your, let's say first round investors either had a food allergy or they had a loved one who had a food allergy? Every single one of them. They all like intimately understood. Yes. And that, and that was like a great call out because 
if the person at the other side of the table just didn't emotionally connect to what we were doing, I mean, because of all our, our bombshells, it was like game over. So that was a part of our, our vetting process too. We had a great seed investor who was so good about vetting this. Like she would host a dinner with all these VCs and then just like track who had food sensitivities and allergies and like hand me the names of everyone. Oh, so it was like a good, good vetting. Only, only gluten bread, only bread at the, the exactly. She had like a really robust, like vetting for the event. People were like, wow, like you covered every allergy here. That's great. That's it's like they're all part of a large like focus group. They just don't know yeah, that they still know it. the outcome of the focus group is uh, we'll be sending you, yeah, we'll be sending you an email on Monday requesting an hour meeting at your office to exactly. you know, go through PowerPoint slides. Exactly. So during your time fundraising, do you do you kind of have any, you know, funny, sad stories like like best pitch, worst pitch, or have you, do you remember all that? Or have you tried to get, get rid of that? Oh, no, no. Oh, that'll stay with me for life. Um, I remember, (laughs) I remember every pitch. No, and there were a lot of them. I think that the pitches that were the best were the ones that honestly were like the least, felt like the least effort. Like it just, like the partner got it. They were excited, obviously to run through the diligence, but like the least friction, a lot of excitement and yeah, run through the diligence, obviously like, you know, do the robust diligence that's needed. But those are the, just like the, the ones that you just, you kind of like, you felt you knew it was going in the right direction. The ones that were the, man, there was this one that it was just grueling and it was, it, it was the worst, I think the worst experience not because it's like a one and done, but it just kept going. And, and, and it was just like drawing everything out of us. And that was, it was like earlier in my experience as a CEO and in the fundraising process. And I was like, I thought this was just like really positive signal until I got some advice where it's like, you know, your job is to manage a CEO, like that process and cut it off where it needs to be cut off. Like at a certain point, if they're like not going to commit, you know, you just, you, you stop, um, and so that one was tough because we were in a really precarious state. Cash was running out. I felt like I was I was mentally putting all my eggs in this basket. And it seemed like partner meeting after partner meeting and like 10 meetings and data. And then at the end, they were like, love it, but we're going to pass. And it was literally like, oh, my God, I couldn't I couldn't believe it. I was really. So after that experience, I was just so I was probably like maybe too just negative around or just around like the expectation setting, especially the, the leadership team. I was, even if the VCs were like, we love it. We're going to like wire the money on Monday. And I was like, guys, no one get excited. No one get excited until this is in the bank. Like I, I was just so, so conservative after that experience. Yeah. That makes if, sense. You, if you've, if you've raised money for long enough, you just know you don't want to be on the roller coaster. You just no. want to kind of remain even. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. What well, other than fundraising? I mean, can you think of other? I mean, we talked a little bit about like medical adoption, patient adoption, like mm-hmm. other specific challenges that you thought you didn't even anticipate. I mean, you talked about hardware. You knew this chemical sort of reactions are going to be complex to do in a in a consumable. But anything that sort of surprised you about how challenging, or some part of your journey that was especially challenging. Mm. I think it was, it was the, really like the, the just like awareness, raising the marketing for awareness of this product category. I didn't anticipate how challenging a new product category would be to like get, get the masses even aware that this solution exists. You know, sort of starting at the point where like, once they know, 
it's going to be amazing. But to get them to know yeah, is to quite, know. quite a, a challenge. And um, yeah. I think I just didn't like, I discount, I, I didn't appreciate the investment and effort that that could take for a new product category that really just has no precedent. So I'd say that was a that was a good learning. And I heard, you know, what, what a friend once said to me, you know, first time entrepreneurs, they're ex- obsessed with product. And I think that was me. I was like obsessed with our product. But second time entrepreneurs or third time or subsequent entrepreneurs, they are as obsessed, if not more, with distribution. And I mean, distribution includes like, yeah, how do you get the product out there? How do you raise awareness? How do you get that marketing? And I think that was like a really good, good lesson for us. Yeah. I mean, I've found over three different startups that, and this is where the engineer and the scientists are going to, you know, put comments in at the bottom of the podcast. I feel like the technology is relatively easy. Like making a better product than what exists is more straightforward, but putting it into the hands of large quantities of people in a way that financially makes sense, really, really the big challenge, particularly in healthcare. Like in healthcare, I think distribution is the giant challenge that that you have to be thinking of day one when you when you start to build a company. Totally. I'm sure that while you were co-founder and CEO, you got lots of advice. That's kind of like part of the gig. Like everybody wants to tell you what you're doing right or doing wrong or should be doing differently. (laughs) Do you remember the worst advice that you ever got while you were at NEMA? And you don't have to name names. If you want to name names, feel free. No, 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 of course. I would say the, the, the worst advice, I think the worst advice was was probably in the beginning where someone's like, "You're this is this is like an incredible idea. Like, don't share this with anyone. Like, keep it so close. People are going to be able to like rip this idea out of you and like run with it and and copy it. And so it was like, don't be so conservative about who you talk to and who hears about what you're doing. And that like I kind of took that to heart. It was like at MIT, and I was like, I can't tell anyone. You know, this is top secret. Like, we're gonna be. But then I you know, later on, someone said like, look if someone can take your idea and like do it better than you, you should probably just quit what you're doing and go work for them. So like have faith in like your ability and your, you know, and, and, and also there's like a lot of benefit to sharing and seeding and getting, you know, getting, getting the word out there about what you're doing. So I think it was like, that was, that wasn't the best advice, especially at MIT. I feel like I could have even gotten the flywheel started a little faster if I was just a little more open about what I was doing. I'm not trying to be like, keep the cards so close to the chest. And I certainly didn't do that in the, in the, as the company progressed. Well, certainly if you raise a ton of money, you can go it alone, but I yeah. think, you know, most businesses have to figure out how to collaborate with others yes. Yes. who have kind of a shared goal and kind of a similar direction to travel. Totally. Well, I guess in, in some ways you kind of answered the question about worst advice, but also best advice. But is there another piece of best advice that you would you would want to kind of share with the audience? I think that the 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 best one of the best advice is I, I feel like for a lot of entrepreneurs who are raising capital, fundraising is can be really really hard. Hopefully for a minority few it's not, but for majority it's hard. And a great piece of advice I got during the fundraising effort was aside from cutting it off quick more quickly and not letting it drag out, was that the the reminder that it is an ecosystem and there seems to be this power dynamic when you're trying to raise money where you don't have the money the investors do and so there's this like this power dynamic but 
to get some of that power back, this this piece of advice gave me some of that power back, which is look, you're a critical part of that ecosystem. Without you, investors have no place to invest. And so don't forget that as you're going through the fundraising effort that you and what you're doing, no one else is doing it or no one else is doing it in the way you're doing. Don't forget that because there's no place to invest if you're not doing what you're doing. You're part of that part of that ecosystem. And that just gave me a little of that power back. And it I really like helped me in some of those. And then also the fact that like, look, you're going to get a lot of no's and it just takes that one yes to just get the ball cascading in the right direction. And so like that mentality of just like, no, it's not another, it's not another no, but it's like, that's one closer to the yes. That's a no, let's move on. One closer to the yes. We got one more closer to the yes. And so just that positivity was really helpful in the millions of rounds of fundraising that we did. <laughs> it, this, this resonates yeah. in my first startup, the co-founder, he was actually more excited when he heard a no yeah. than when he heard a yes. <laughs> yeah. That's like, he's probably a seasoned, seasoned, uh, Oh, seasoned he, he had done 14 different startups. And so he was like, a no tells me that I'm doing something unique. Yes. A yes tells me that I'm not being unique or aggressive enough. And I was like, but a yes does that money's coming in. <laughs> totally. So, but yeah, he, he was, uh, he was a unique case. Very, very yeah. bold guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a great mentality to have when you're fundraising. You know, it's switching gears a little bit. It's, it's easy to look at sort of people's careers and, and sort of trajectories on LinkedIn and sort of in this often glorified way, here's all the successes. Shreen had this exit and then went here and there and actually, but you know, also kind of pertaining to your story about how you started and moving in with your with your new husband and your co-founder and your parents' family. You, you, during this time when you were a CEO and starting and running this company, you gave birth to two children, uh, your first one in 2017, second in 2019. And the idea of sort of running a startup and being a mother, being a partner, you know, beginning a family, two super complex and gigantic, you know, roles and asks of a person. So how did you balance or how did you find balance? Or maybe you didn't find balance at some times and then found it later. So what was that like? What was that part of your journey like? It was, it was, it was, yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It was, it was very, very hard to balance those two. And, and I had like an amazing support system. I, my parents were, around and helpful. And, you know, I, my husband was like, like involved and, but even with that, it was, yeah, it was, it was very, very challenging. And, and I think what made it challenging was just the, I was so committed to the company. I like, I kind of, I was like, made it my first, it was my first baby, my Nima, my product. And I, yeah, I was just like mentally really committed to the company. And I didn't take, I think as much time and space to really enjoy those early stages of parenthood and starting a family. If I were to do it again, I would give myself more time for sure. And I remember like this is resonant with a lot of people who start families. And I, I think like it's, a, it's different for women. And I remember talking to another woman who had just had a child and, and was a startup CEO and, you know, new, sort of new company. And I was like, do you, can, can we chat about this? And she was like at, at this portfolio event, whenever we see, she's like, no, it's too raw. Like I cannot talk yeah. about like this right now. And it, I think it's like, it's hard because yeah. it's like, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's, it was, I was in charge of all the choices. You know, I decided to start the company. I decided to have the kids. Sure. So I like totally yeah. take ownership of that, but it, but also it's hard. And, 
and to the credit of the investors, like they were incredibly supportive and, and yeah, and very, I think it was, this was in around, I started the company, what, in 2013 and then yes, had the kid like in 2017, 2019. So I think we're seeing more cases of this, which is great. More female entrepreneurs, more startups, more, more, um, babies <laughs> while you're a CEO. But I think mm-hmm. I, when I was going through it, there was just like a t- as much of a precedent. So they were great, but there was also like, help us like figure this out together. (laughs) Like we haven't been in this boat together. So that was, that was something to navigate as well with the board and the investors. Were you surprised by how supportive they were? I totally was. I totally was. I was like so nervous about telling them about both births and pregnancies and, and, and the reactions were amazing and positive. And that was like, I was I was surprised. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting like that outpouring of support. Did you feel guilty? Like you were, you were sort of stepping away and not putting the same emphasis towards the business. Was that part of, yeah. Totally. I totally felt like I have this, you know, fiduciary responsibility. This is like, I, you know, I need to give everything, my life to this product and company. And if I'm not doing that, that, that was like a really extreme unhealthy mindset I had. And of course you were like giving everything you have, even as, as a founder and CEO, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can't like live your life in other aspects and with the right support systems in place. And so I was, and so that, yeah, that shaped the extreme mentality I had that no one told me to have, like it wasn't anyone, you know, any influence. I think maybe just maybe probably like unprecedented societal influence really shaped the yeah, the regret that I have that I didn't take a little more time on the front end of those of the early stages of parenthood. You, you probably like most entrepreneurs, particularly in the Valley, you read a little bit too much TechCrunch, or I guess I at that time maybe it was Pando Daily, or yeah, probably. And, and I mean, there there there's always the story about you know the level of commitment that somebody made and the sleeping on the manufacturing floor and the which okay. I think you know sometimes is necessary. I mean, it's great, but at the same time. Like, you know, there is life outside of a startup and, you know, you need to find that space. And I think like good investors understand that if you have that, you know, personal and professional life, you're probably going to be more successful and more balanced in how you perform as a CEO. So it's kind of a long-term, short-term, I think, focus uh, for everybody involved. I I was on the, I was looking at your bio the other day and and, uh, I noticed when you talk about NEMA, you know, you're very good about you know, we and us and the team and, you know, you, it comes across in everything you wrote about it, about how proud you were and the team that you built. And I'm wondering over the the time that you ran NEMA, what you sort of learned about recruiting talent and building teams. Yeah. I, I think that what I learned is that I had this mentality as like this like archetype of a, of a startup person that, you know, that is like the the perfect startup person. This like that is proactive and and resilient and can do a lot of different things. And I think that's generally, generally right in terms of attitude. But one thing that I learned is like at different stages of the company, you're going to just need the different archetypes of people. And I think I was, I didn't realize that as much. So that was like a learning where like, Hey, what you, who you need in the first like two years to get to this stage is not who you need. Like once it, once, you know, the company maybe like launches it on the market and there's a totally different skill set. So that was something culturally that was new, like to manage and, and figure out. And, and yeah, like the folks that were kind of from the, from this day one had this like cultural, they were really important culturally, but the skill sets weren't 
necessarily carrying over to like now that the product was commercial and launching. And so just trying to navigate that was challenging. But team, I mean, team is everything. I think like the other thing I learned is we, we early on, we had like an amazingly technical, yeah, we had like along the way, some great technical folks that just had the expertise, but not sometimes just like didn't have the right attitude or like had some tension or it just wasn't, wasn't like bought into the culture. And I, I felt like you really have to get the folks that, you know, like are, are the right cultural fit. And, and then even if, even if it's like someone that might not be as technically strong, because if culture is failing, like at a size of the company for a startup, then you're really at risk. So culture was a much more important, I think, than I gave it credit for when I first started the company. I mean, if you could kind of think of like the most important character trait that you would want to hire for, irregardless of whether they're technical or they're commercial or operations focused, is was there one thing you just were like, I've got to make sure that that candidate has this trait before I, I would be comfortable enough to offer them a job? We had one of those values that I, I just reinforce everywhere, which is curiosity. So th- this trait that like people come in and if they're just like curious and they want to, they want to learn why they're yeah. curious to learn more. They want to unpack it. And they, and that breeds a proactivity too, that is so critical to startups. So people that just like not taking no for an answer, not taking the first answer, just like keep probing, keep probing, understand why I felt like that character straight, that value was so important for, for the right folks on our team. Was there, I think, you know, we always talk about success with the tech crunch, you know, stories about how many hours someone spent and, you got so many billions of dollars of valuation, but but let's talk a little bit about what were the what were what was something that was salient that you would consider like a, a failure or a learning experience or your darkest day, and then how did you get how did you get up the next day? How did you go back? How did you overcome it, or did you overcome it, or you know what yeah. was that part of the story? I think that one of the like biggest just kicks in the stomach for me was when our our one critical, critical technical person who was there from day one decided to leave the company. And that, that was a very, that was, that was really hard. I mean, I just, because it was just like so much of the, the brilliance of the, uh, on the, on the technology side was driven by this one person. And it was the first time that like a really, I mean, everyone's critical, but like super critical person decided to leave. And I, yeah, I definitely took the time to mourn it. <laughs> like, I definitely took a, I think I took a day off actually to really process it because it was so, it was a little bit out of nowhere. But then I, you know, I think I just came back and then that happened like <laughs> 10 more times through the journey, uh, you know, I was like totally yeah. desensitized to it. But that yeah. first one, I remember it just felt like such a kick in the stomach. And it was like, do they not believe in the vision? Do they not believe in the company? Are they seeing something I'm not seeing? So like making you really question everything, at least for me for that first one. And then it, yeah, then it happens all along the way. Yeah. 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 When you, uh, when you would take, when you took that day off, was there something that you liked to go do that was sort of your distraction? Did you have I, a go-to? I, I like to take nature baths, not, not like bathing in rivers, but actually just getting in a forest and like, that's what I call it. Okay. So you're not actually jumping into a, a pond or a river. Yeah, it's like, okay. I, I don't know what I was. Nature Sorry, bath. That's, nature bath. that's, I've never so heard that one, but I'm going to use that. Leaves. No, yeah, uh, yeah. Nature bath, you know, get, get in the, get in the trees. Like I, I'm always amazed at how quickly my heart rate just stabilizes and I get calm when I'm in the presence of 
of nature. And it sounds so basic, but that's, that's what I choose to do. And like, I usually, I like to yeah, get moving in nature, go on a hike, go to the ocean. Yeah. So that was, that was my, definitely my uh, savior during a lot of the NEMA challenges. So NEMA was acquired in 2020. Um, and obviously, you know, for a venture backed startup, exiting is one of the goals, but it, it can certainly be a nerve wracking process. What was the experience like for you as a co-founder and CEO? And it was a tough time for us because, so our product mostly used at restaurants and this whole acquisition happened around the time the pandemic hit in 2020. So when restaurants shut down, we were, you know, we were, we were, we were impacted in, in a lot of ways that the food industry, the, the restaurant industry was. So it was a very stressful time because I was trying to secure the, the future of the product and make sure that it landed in, in a great place. And it was also a lot of unknowns. Like, you know, as a startup CEO, you go through a lot of learning new things. And this was something new I had never done before. And so the way I, I managed that was just talk to as many people as I could that had gone through any type of acquisition, just try to understand what should I look for? What should I avoid? You know, how should I approach this? I had a few close mentors that were incredibly helpful who had gone through it a few times, but I was also amazed at how many people would just, you know, like really like cold outreach on LinkedIn. If someone had, you know, I'd look through someone's profile to see if they had like a, maybe like a acquisition, similar product, you know, hardware, and they would just like be super helpful. So I'd say just like surrounding myself with, a lot of people and experts where I could learn faster than the rate of my experience. And that wasn't just tied to the acquisition, but that's like kind of a general theme. I think when you're in a start leading a startup that that's doing something new that no one's ever done before, just, you have to learn faster than the rate of your experience. Otherwise you're going to fail. So this is a, this is a common question we ask to, uh, to guests. So we've built a time machine, Jay and I, okay. and we've, we've raised a billion dollars to fund what is going to be a very complex piece of engineering. Um, but you're our first customer. You're, you're going to go into the MVP. <laughs> and you may not come back, by the way. But <laughs> let's just say, hypothetically, you do. If you could go back into time, like 2013, founding of NEMA, is there any decision or choice that you made as CEO that you would revisit, that you think would you know, have a, a impact on the business itself? I think there would be two things. One, I would get, I would, I think I would get in front of those advocacy groups sooner and, and just like start socializing the concept, building that trust faster, sooner and faster, or, you know, any, any sort of stakeholder, but especially those advocacy groups. And then the second thing I would do is I, I mentioned earlier, I was product obsessed. I would try to be as equally, I was equally as obsessed around building distribution we spent like, you know, a few years just developing the product. In that time, we could have just been developing the distribution pipelines as well. And that's what I would have done. I waited till we had the like product working and working well and we knew it would be shipping, but you got to parallel path the two. So I would do that and I accept your investment. Thank you. Because I know that you're going to write, you're going to write the check for me to redo this thing. <laughs> but I do. Yeah, absolutely. I But I do, if, I do remember this vividly that you guys had, you did like a pre-launch and yeah. you had a, a very large database of people who were interested in the product or yes. I don't know if they put deposits down. So, I mean, you did do that work. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm being too so, hard on myself. Well, I mean, that's the nature of being <laughs> founders and CEOs. We have to be harder on ourselves yeah. than 
others so are. I, yeah. So let me clarify. When I say distribution, we put we were putting like 90% of our eggs in the direct-to-consumer basket. So I would think about diversifying that. Like what are the right re- retail partners? What are the right other channels like in doctor's offices and uh, nutrition offices, like what are all these like diversified set of channels that we can start testing early on? And that's hard in hardware, right? It's hard retail. You can't just like plug into target. You can't just plug into CVS, but you can start building those relationships. I think to like seed those, those potential pipelines so that when you're ready, you know, it's been seeded, it's been primed and you're like, you're building those, those relationships. You don't have to start from, from nowhere. Kind of final question. You know, now that you sort of look back on the experience, what is, what's the legacy of NEMA? There was a quote from a customer that wrote in with a peanut allergy when we had the peanut product out. And she was, it was a British customer. And she said, I went into a pub. I used NEMA to try, I ordered these, I don't know what they call fries. What are the chips? Chips and, and dip. Yeah. Chips. Yeah. And, and Fish and I, chips. Fish yeah. And chips. That's, and, I, and she said, maybe she, the first thing she should have been doing is not eating all the fried food. That would have yeah, yeah, been the first um, piece of advice. Right. And, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, like she said, I, I tested, they, they ensured me everything was peanut free. She tested the dip. And it came back positive for peanut and they went into the kitchen and sure enough, there was some cross contamination that they uncovered. And she's like, this literally like, it, you know, could have saved my life. It could have saved me a trip to the hospital. And, and she's like, and, and I just feel so much more empowered to have this, to like try and live my life to the fullest and, and I'm not, not putting herself in situations she wouldn't otherwise, but just having that extra data point. So I think the legacy is ultimately giving everyone a seat at the table so that you can enjoy your company, your food, and feel like you have that seat at the table with that extra data point. It's no guarantee, but it's one extra data point that will give you a little more confidence to live your life to the fullest. And I hope that's what the NEMA legacy is. That's awesome. Shireen. That's a good end. <laughs> that, is, that is a good end. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you For guys. taking the time to, uh, to chat with Jay and I. This has been awesome and we appreciate you being the first guest. And I had a lot of fun. I did too. Thank Sorry, you. Man. It's great having you here. Thank you, guys. It was a great opportunity to reflect, and I, I appreciate that. So thank you. It was an honor. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Shireen. Yeah. Appreciate it. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.